Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following program contains adult content Explicit language and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Stop for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one looks. Talks in the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would who who whose life would be. I harm someone each time. I- Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be talking about this week, Barney? Well, Tara, I'm going to talk about Anthony Sullivan, a knucklehead drug dealer who blamed his first murder on a head injury only to murder again 13 years later. Oh. Because he believed one of his customers stole his wallet. Okay, I'm very interested to hear more about that. Hmm. What have you got for us this week, Tara? Well, this week I looked into the case of a failed child actor and con man who committed a horrendous double murder, thinking that if the bodies weren't found, he couldn't be prosecuted for it, despite leaving quite a large trail of evidence. Yeah, common mistake. Yes, yes. Well, he'll get his comeuppance in the end, but oh, it's a harsh journey. Oh, I hope so. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our gorgeous and brilliant patrons. If you want to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Let's let's get murdery. All right. I hope you are. I hope you're all ready for quite a tale. Uh, strap yourself in, Barney, and feel the G's. Oh, you're really going to have to. Skylar Julius de Leon was born John Julius Jacobson Jr. on August 12, 1979. De Leon began acting in small parts in commercials as a kid. When he was 14, he appeared as an uncredited extra in the series Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. He claimed to have played the more important role of Roger, but that was the bullshit he spun to big note himself. You know, because, like, the role of Roger was such an important character, right? Everybody's favourite. You know, most people actually call the show the Mighty Morphin Power Rogers. The Mighty Rogering Power Rogers. Yeah, pretty much, because, you know, (laughs) that role of Roger, if only he'd got it, he would have been a star. Well, Meryl Streep, I believe, did it. Yeah, I think she's the one who eventually got the role. Well, she acted the shit out of it too. She won an Academy Award for it. Twelve. 12, 12 Academy Awards for it. I believe that's it's true. It's hard to do. She egotted. She got an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony for the role of Roger yes. in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, well, she, the TV show. Well, she also played a tree in one of the episodes and uh, won multiple awards for that. Oh, yes. Yeah, she, she became um, Time's Person of the Year for her tree portrayal. She's very good. She is very good. Delione's career as an actor never really took off, which is kind of surprising because he is a con man and you'd think the two things would complement each other, right? Pretending, lying. Yeah. Yes. That's what actors do. They just lie. <laughs> um, well, you know, there's a, some other schools of thought on that. <laughs> but okay, fair enough. 
Delion and the Truth have a terrible relationship. They usually aren't even on speaking terms. At the age of 20, he joined the United States Marine Corps, but he went on unauthorized absence two weeks later. He was given a discharge. It was not honorable. Uh, he went AWOL and they went nut. Nah. Yeah, we're going to discharge on you in a dishonorable fashion. <laughs> Ooh, ah. After this, he went from one dead-end job to another while his wife Jennifer worked as a hairdresser. Despite being in their early 20s, the two had a young daughter and Jennifer was pregnant with their second child. In 2003, Delion and his wife were broke and living in the tiny garage apartment attached to her intensely religious parents' house. Well, that sounds like a recipe for fun, doesn't it? Well, it's not a recipe for cake, is it? I'm not eating that cake. <laughs> well, it's more likely to be cake than it is to be fun. They were desperate to get money and move somewhere else. Looking for a con to facilitate this, Delione happened upon an ad for a boat docked at Newport Beach that was big enough to live on and expensive enough to sell and make a pretty penny. The boat was named the Well Deserved and it had a hefty price tag of $435,000, which the Deliones certainly could not afford. Well, if it was bollers, they could afford it. Yes, yes, but we all know they're not real and they buy you nothing. That's true. So the smug con man Pissant and his entitled brat of a wife hatched a heinous plan to make the boat their own. The owners of the well-deserved were 57-year-old Tom Hawkes and his 47-year-old wife Jackie. They were a very athletic, healthy, happy couple who had worked all their lives to retire early. For three years, they'd sailed from port to port, going where they wanted to, when they wanted to, and doing stuff like scuba diving and swimming with dolphins and whales. Mm, that sounds sweet. Oh, yeah, they were living the dream. I want to be there. Yeah, they were living the life they dreamed of, and from the home videos I saw of them, they were really fucking happy to be doing so. Mm, cool. So nothing bad happens to them, I assume. No, it's awesome. They kill this guy who tries to kill them and then like, they just go sailing again and everything's great. Tom Hawks had been a firefighter and a probation officer, but he was a seaman at heart. Salt water ran through his veins. Um, he took a 14-foot dory to Catalina Island when he was just 17 and worked summers teaching others how to sail when he was still quite young. I heard he was a sweet skateboarder too. No, no, this is an ocean man. The different hawks? Very different hawks. All right. The song by Ween called Ocean Man was actually written about Tom Hawks. Yeah. True fact. Ocean Man. That's it. He and his sons had always gone on sailing vacations, and his sons have said that the moments on the water together were actually the happiest moments of their childhood. After a divorce in 1979, Tom Hawkes left his firefighting job in Cardiff-by-the-Sea and moved to Prescott so he and his young sons, Matt and Ryan, could be close to their extended family. It's here that he took a job as a probation officer. Hal Slaughter, a friend of Tom's, said he was as good-natured as he was strong. Hang on a second. What was his name? Hal Slaughter. Hal Slaughter. Isn't that a good name for a podcast host? It is. Hal Slaughter. Yeah. So Hal said that Tom was as good-natured as he was strong and he loved practical jokes. In fact, he once actually left a giant boulder on Hal's porch, like, just as a prank. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why do I have a giant boulder on wow. my porch? He's as good-natured as he was strong. Yeah. If you describe me that way, you would be saying that I'm pretty shit. Oh, that's because you're not super strong or yeah. good-natured. Yeah. And neither of the two apply to you, no. right? Yeah. He was as shit-natured as he was weak. Does that sound more like... Yeah, 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 oh, thanks. Okay. I think you're better than that, though, Barney. Oh, thanks. I mean, marginally, but better still. No, not really. Hal said you never knew what he was going to do. Afterward, he'd stare at you with those penetrating eyes and all of a sudden laugh and slap you on the back. Sounds like a go-getting jerkster, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I like him. Total prankster. I like him. In 1986, while at a chilly cook-off, Tom met Jackie well, and they fell in love. That's the place to meet a woman. I would say a chilly cook-off is the place where love would bloom. Mm. And it did. They were married two years later in a Hawaiian-themed wedding. They had a pineapple wedding cake. Well, they didn't, but they were wearing like, you know... Hawaiian-y clothes and... Hawaiian shirts, lays. Yeah. Grass Everyone skirts. got laid. 
Tom's son, Matt, said, My dad thought more of her than anyone. They were a perfect couple, like a ship and a rudder. One doesn't work without the other. Jackie got along well with Tom's young sons, and they soon came to view her as their mother. They even called her mum. Oh. She was just really slotted in beautifully with the whole family. Oh, and- nice. Ryan Hawke said the couple lived a frugal lifestyle. The reason he was able to retire early and live on the water and do this dream of travelling through Mexico was because of his financial responsibility, he said. So he pretty much bought everything in cash and he didn't live that sort of like, you know, in-debt credit life. In 2001, earlier than planned, Tom had found a sales ad for The Well Deserved, a 55-foot yacht with teakwood staterooms and a spacious cockpit. Because you don't want a cramped cockpit, do you? Well, no, I, I wouldn't think that would be the best way forward, yeah. He told his sons, The sea was calling us and we can't wait any longer. Life is too short to put things off and one cannot discover new oceans unless they have the courage to lose sight of the shore. He's a wise man. I like that. He seemed really cool, actually. At 54, Tom quit his job. They sold their house and moved aboard the yacht, which was docked in Long Beach Harbour. They spent a year renovating the ship. They took scuba diving lessons and invited friends to join them on local island cruises. I wish I was friends with them. I know. It looked like a hell of a lot of fun. Finally, the Hawks cruised south to the tip of Baja Peninsula, across toward the Mexican mainland and up the Gulf of California, stopping at coves to dive or fish for dinner. It's idyllic. Yeah, awesome. They'd go away to sea, House Slaughter said, and come back with shells and stories. They lived a life most of us wanted to live. No worries. Stop where and when you want. Then, when son Matt and his wife Nicole had a child, the first time grandparents believed being around their grandson was more important than being at sea. They decided to sell the boat and return to Arizona to be near baby Jace and their family. The Hawks met their grandson only once when he was two weeks old. Matt remembers Jackie arriving with hand-beaded boats to hang in a nursery full of sailing paraphernalia. Tom hugged baby Jace, saying, I'm going to teach you how to swim. I'm going to teach you how to build things and go sailing. Matt says, My parents were willing to give up their life on the ocean to be grandparents. They would have been the absolute best grandparents. And Jace would have gotten to learn so much from them. I want them to be my grandparents. <laughs> I want them to be just anything in my I want them to be alive now. Yeah. That's what I would like. Tom and Jackie invited their friends on their boat for one last little cruise to help them say goodbye to the ocean life. Then the well-deserved was put up for sale. When he responded to the Hawks' advert for the boat, Tom and Jackie were wary of 24-year-old Skylar DeLeon. They couldn't imagine he'd be able to afford to buy the ship. He told the Hawks he was a successful actor, lies, and property investor, also lies. Well, haven't you heard about Roger and the mighty Rogering Power Power Rogers? Power Rogers. Oh, my God, that whole show revolved around Roger. And by the way, he didn't play Roger. I know. Actually, the whole show revolved around uncredited extra, which was the role that he played. Well, Meryl Streep played Roger. We know that now. Yeah, and she was amazing at it. Oh, amazing. So great. Like, I actually thought she was Roger. I forgot that she was actually Meryl. Well, that's right. That's Mm. that's when you know it's good She has that power as an actor. She does have power, yeah. So Tom and Jackie didn't know that the Power Rangers story was grossly exaggerated. Or that De Leon had just served time for armed burglary in the Seal Beach Jail in Southern California. Ooh, he's got form. Yeah, bad form. Jackie had mentioned excitedly that they were selling up so they could move closer to their baby grandson. Always looking for an angle, De Leon noticed how important family was for them and called his pregnant wife Jackie to come down to the boat and bring their two-year-old daughter. Ryan Hawks believes the presence of DeLeon's wife, Jennifer, and their toddler reassured Tom and Jackie Hawks. The new grandparents trusted him more after they met the young mother. Yeah, it's a great equaliser, children, if yeah. you've got children. Well, it makes yeah. people think like, oh, you must be okay. You're, you must be a good person you're putting if, your if you're putting your life a parent. into raising kids. Yeah, mm. unfortunately, it's not always true. Mm. Ryan Hawks has said, Jennifer DeLeon is the one that did the convincing. You show a family to my family, they're going to let their guard down. Yeah, yeah. 
Delion, who had told the Hawks he was interested in buying the boat, said he wanted to be taken out to sea so he could swim below and examine the hull. A couple of days later, on November 15, 2004, Delion organised to take the boat out with the Hawks. They steered out of Southern California's Newport Harbour just before sunset with Delion and two men he had organised to come with them, Alfonso Machain and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I kid you not, it's not a dead president. <laughs> Alfonso Machain was a pinhead prison guard who'd befriended Delion when he was serving time for burglary. Due to the fitness level of the couple and the fact Tom Hawkes was a big muscly guy who at 57 could still be played in a movie by a 35-year-old Burt Reynolds, they'd bought Kennedy, who was built like a brick shit house, along as muscle. Mm, sounds like me, that Tom guy. Yeah, heaps. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was pretty much the opposite of his US president namesake in every way. Oh, he was alive. He was alive. Maybe he was faithful to his partner. And right. also, he was not a stand-up guy. He was a member of the Long Beach Insane Crips gang who had served time for attempted murder. Through an intermediary, DeLeon arranged to meet and hire Kennedy that same day at a liquor store parking lot. That's where all the good business goes down. Well, yeah, you don't have to look up uh, assassins in Soldier of Fortune anymore. You just go to your local off-license. Yeah, hang out in the parking lot. Kennedy was asked to present himself to the couple as... An accountant or something of that nature, and even arrived wearing a suit. They'd also bought tasers, handcuffs, and duct tape with them. Then nobody heard from the Hawks for several days, and their family became really worried because they always had their phones on, like you could always contact them. Right. Trisha Schutz, a close friend who handled Tom and Jackie's finances when they were away, said... Uh, their son Matt called me and said I haven't been able to get in touch with mum and dad and 10 minutes later Ryan called me saying I'm looking for mum and dad. They always stayed in contact with family. Everybody was worried. Oh, the family's obviously concerned, yeah. And also family's everything to these people. They love the water and they love their family and that's their lives, you know. Mm, indeed. If Tom and Jackie Hawks had actually sold their boat, then Trisha would have been the first to know. She would have seen the new money into their bank accounts. But when she discovered that no money had been deposited, she said, we all knew that something terrible was wrong. The Hawks had told their family uh, that a man named Skylar DeLeon was going to be looking at their boat and they were taking it out. So there was kind of a trail back to him. Orange County Prosecutor Matt Murphy said that when questioned, DeLeon told police he'd bought the boat, paid in cash in a parking lot in Newport, and then watched the couple drive away. A notary later confessed that she was paid $2,000 to backdate documents for the yacht's sale. DeLeon's version of events didn't sound true to Ryan Hawkes. Right away he said he knew that his parents had been murdered and that DeLeon had something to do with it. In a desperate attempt to find Tom and Jackie, Ryan appeared on national TV to plead for answers. His TV appearances paid off when someone in Bajar, California, said they recognised images of the Hawks' car. The witness said it was left in Mexico, not by anyone matching Tom or Jackie's description, but instead by DeLeon. Everything started crashing down for the Deleones when a bank surveillance tape showed them trying to access Tom and Jackie's bank accounts. Oh, they're getting greedy, aren't they? They started off greedy. What do you mean getting? Well, they're getting even more greedy. The Deleones arrived at the bank with a power of attorney signed by both Jackie and Tom. Jackie Hawk's signature, however, appeared abnormal and it was signed Hawk instead of Hawks. Well, I often forget to put one letter of my name when I In sign my name. In your signature? Do you really? No, no, no I don't. No, you don't. You no, don't. I think she was fucking with them. Yeah. Because this couple, they were strong folk, really yeah. awesome people who just did everything they could not to have this happen. When DeLeon was arrested and the officer was patting him down, he felt some padding around his butt and he wondered, was the kid trying to hide something inside his pants? What the hell is this? The officer asked. It's a diaper, Delion replied. What the fuck you got a diaper for? The cop asked. I'm incontinent, Delion said. Like, that's not a super important plot point, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I, I, indeed. 
Yes. <laughs> it enriches the story. Well, it, it, it does in a way mm. because Delion. He is a pissy little greedy bitch, isn't he? Absolutely, and uh, this proves it. Yeah. Possibly shitty as well. As the police searched the Delion's garage apartment, they found a shit ton of incriminating evidence. Two attache cases filled with the Hawks' personal papers, their high eight digital recorder with some recorded tapes. Jackie's laptop and a notebook with chord progressions and lyrics to a song Delione was writing about partying in Mexico. Oh, do you have do you have I that? I have some lyrics. Would you like to hear? I them? would love to. They're particularly artistic and genius, insightful. Some might say. Oh, I'm intrigued. Alrighty, here we go. Wine Dine 69, cheap thrills and a bottle of wine. That's all it's going to take to make you mine. Oh, hang on a second. Did Bob Dylan write that? I think he did. I'm pretty sure Barbara Streisand has actually recorded this song as well. And Beyonce is like, oh, give it to me. Yeah. The evidence weighed against the Delions, but there wasn't enough to convict them of murder. That is until Alonzo Machain, the guard from the Seal Beach uh, jail, Confessed. He sung like a bird. He did. The prosecutor said, I don't think anybody realised how horrible it was until we talked to Alonzo. In court, Machane explained in horrific detail the Delion's premeditated plan to steal from Tom and Jackie Hawks. So I'm going to tell you about the murder. It's really, oh, it's I mean, unlike all the other murders we talk about, this one's really fucked up. I get how ridiculous that sounds, but it's fucked up in a way we haven't talked about before. Hmm. Okay. So once they were out at sea, the group tasered Tom Hawk several times and then handcuffed him. Tom had been a champion wrestler in college and was a fitness buff, and he made sure he made it extremely difficult for the men. After a fierce struggle, Tom Hawkes was unable to overcome the surprise attack. McChain explained that his assignment was to restrain Jackie Hawkes above deck. He said, she was fighting, biting me, she was trying to hold me back. But this pissant had a taser, so it's not like it was a fair fight or my money would have been on Jackie to kick his ass. Go Jackie. Oh, she could have, she would have. Machane said Delion asked him to tape the couple's eyes and mouth shut and put them on their bed. Then they brought them upstairs one at a time and forced the couple to sign ownership documents and power of attorney papers over to Delion, repeatedly telling them that if they cooperated, they'd let them go. Power of attorney papers, wow. So they want everything these people yeah, own. Yeah. Delion took out a laptop computer and started demanding the couple's personal information, including social security numbers, dates of birth, and Jackie Hawke's maiden name. They were forced back on top of their bed, where Machane was assigned to babysit them, while Delion searched for an anchor. An anchor? Mm-hmm. According to Machane, Jackie Hawkes managed to get the tape over her mouth loose and begged for their lives, telling him that they didn't want to die and that they just had a new grandchild they wanted to spend time with. She could not believe that Delione, the same person who had bought his pregnant wife and child on the boat, would betray them in such a way. At the same time, Tom Hawkes was trying to comfort his wife by stroking her hand while they were handcuffed to the bed. Then came the most shocking part of his confession, Machane's description of the murder. He said he watched as Delione grabbed an anchor and some rope, tied the couple to the anchor and pushed them to the side of the boat. Um, This is what he said. Then Mr. Hawke was able to lift his leg somehow and he literally tossed Skylar off his feet and knocked him on his butt. And right behind him, the black guy, who was JFK, just takes a big swing at the side of his head and just, I'm pretty sure he knocked him out. It was a last-ditch attempt to save their lives by the powerful captain of the well-deserved. Tom Hawke's man, don't fuck with him. Mm. At that point, Machane said, Delion just pushed them off the side of the boat. Tied to an anchor, Tom and Jackie Hawks plunged to their death in the pitch dark, icy cold water, drowning at sea. 
Their bodies have never been, nor will they ever be found, as De Leon chose an area of the Pacific Ocean that was incredibly deep. De Leon and the men then turned the boat around and began an hour-long trip back to shore. They cracked open beers and one of them grabbed a fishing pole and started fishing. De Leon called his wife to tell her that the deed was done. She asked him if he was sure and he said, yes, I'm sure. Oh, that's cold. Freezing, mate. De Leon initially maintained his innocence, claiming that he was not present at the time of the murder and that the couple were killed over a drug deal gone wrong. Well, that sounds very implausible. Ugh, not those two. I mean, what, no, nah, just so much no. It's not even worth, like, defending them. It's just no. Dr. Park Dietz, a noted forensic psychiatrist. Oh, Park Dietz. Yeah, and a friend of the podcast who gives great advice like don't masturbate while thinking about roadkill. That is good advice. Yeah, we put that at the end of an episode. He um, actually analysed De Leon and he had this to say. His ability to smile, have fun and continue the plan, even though he sees what it's doing to them, how they're reacting, how helpless they've become, that he has broken these people down to just steal their stuff, tells us that he is not a man capable of compassion. He might be able to fake it, he might be able to fake remorse, but it isn't there. Yeah, I go with that. Park Dietz is amazing. There's YouTube videos, check him out, he's Mm. really cool. At trial, Delion's attorney took an unusual approach. He didn't argue that he was guilty, only that his life be spared because of his difficult childhood. Delion's father, John Julius Jacobson Sr., was by all accounts a nasty piece of work. Not only was he a convicted drug dealer, but he was also a sadistic fuck who sexually abused, beat and tortured Delion. His stepmother said that he was regularly beaten by his father for just ridiculous things like if he got a pimple or if he didn't have his hair combed right. His sister Stephanie said that her father was an awful person and even though he was abusive to everyone in the family, Skylar got the wrath of it, including multiple occasions in which his dad shoved toothpicks under De Leon's fingernails. Oh. So the fact that he changed his name makes sense because he doesn't want to be his dad's junior, does Mm, he? I certainly get that, yeah. And yet he goes on to do things actually more heinous than what his dad did. Well, look, as we know, a lot of people have had these horrible abusive childhoods and they don't go on to murder people. Ah, most of them don't. I don't take it as an excuse. Definitely not. Jennifer De Leon was offered two separate deals to turn state's evidence and testify against her husband. One of them even included immunity for her. Well, she, she could have got off scot free. She took that obviously. Nah, uh uh-uh. uh. Instead, she stuck by her man and went to trial in 2006, where she was convicted and sentenced to two terms of life in prison, which meant that she wasn't there to look after her two little kids. So not only have they killed this beautiful couple, they've made their children orphans. Yeah, and not only that, right? She stood by him, and you know what he did? The smug cunt claimed his wife was the dominant partner in the marriage and the mastermind and driving force behind the murders. Well, that's kind of common practice for a double murder trial like that, where you got two... Uh, two... She didn't blame him, though. He just blamed her. Oh, Okay. Uh, They did get divorced after this for obvious reasons. But, I mean, pissy bitch that he is. Well, at least that trying to create reasonable doubt did not work. The jury didn't buy it. I like that. They weren't both doing it. Only he was doing it. She was Mm. actually going with, no, I don't know anything. He didn't do anything. I mean, Mm. it was just a really stupid decision on her part. She could have gotten away from all of this. Mm. I mean, not that she necessarily deserves to, but she could have. In April 2009, Skylar DeLeon was convicted of charges relating to the murders of both of the Hawks and he was sentenced to death. He was also convicted in the 2003 murder of a man named John Jarvie. So a year before the Hawks murders, DeLeon reportedly baited Jarvie into travelling to Mexico with him to complete an easy money business deal, but instead he slit his throat and robbed him of $50,000. Jarvie died the day after his 45th birthday on a busy Mexican highway. 
So that's where he cut his throat, on a busy Mexican highway. On the side. On the side. Not like in the middle of it. Yeah, right. Jarvie was a licensed pilot and had recently been released from custody after serving five months on a counterfeiting conviction. He served time in the Seal Beach City Jail where he met Deleon. Ooh. JFK and Alonzo Machain were also separately convicted of the Hawks murders. JFK was sentenced to death, while Machain accepted a plea bargain after testifying for the prosecution. He was sentenced to 20 years and four months in prison. Ryan Hawks noted the irony that his father Tom, a probation officer, would be killed by DeLeon, a criminal who was at the time on probation for burglary. Yeah, that is ironic. Yeah, in the darkest way possible. Yeah, not in a good way. Nah. Sometimes irony's awesome. Sometimes it's really fun, but not now. No, no. no. Ryan said, My father believed in public service. He was a civil servant all his life, and he really believed in rehabilitation of criminals. The way they went was unthinkable. I never heard of such an inhumane way to torture someone and kill them. You know, two loving individuals that did nothing wrong. So you'd think that'd be the end of the story, right? What, there's more? Yeah, it isn't because De Leon may never have been a power ranger, but it seems he never fucking quits. Daniel Elias, a career criminal who met De Leon at the Orange County Jail after he was sentenced for the Hawks murders, testified that he asked him to kill his father and one of his cousins. Elias claims he promised him a million dollars for himself and an additional two million for the men Elias would hire for the killings. And that's not all. I have another addendum. Hang on a second. Why would he be trying to kill people for inheritance or something like that? Okay, he hates his dad. I don't know. Whatever reason, who cares? He's still trying to be a criminal mastermind behind jail walls badly. But he's on death row. Yep. Mm. It's not like he could pay him. He just wants to do more damage before he goes out. Yeah, right. So I have another addendum to this shit show. Oh, Actually, re- this case goes forever. Oh, really? The rest of our lives are going to be spent just continuously just right. adding addendums okay. to this shit. What's Skylar up to now? Well, apparently De Leon had wanted a sex change for a long time. But I have trouble believing anything he says. He claims he wanted to be a woman so badly that he tried to cut his penis off in prison. Mm, Try harder. Yeah, he was stopped by the guards and he still has a penis. But what he said about it makes me sort of doubt his motives. He said he hoped that if he became female, he'd be moved into a women's prison because, and I quote, I get along a lot better with females than I do with the guys. Yeah, that doesn't make you a woman. No, it's not like I really identify as being a woman. I always have. It's a thing for It's like, I want to go to lady prison. It seems better. You know what's really, apart from all the other awful, um, De Leon has been loving his time in the spotlight. He's done heaps of interviews, and it's interesting watching them because he has these beady little eyes that dart everywhere, and you can just feel how he's lying. This little prick might have failed as an actor. But he finally made himself famous, didn't he? Well, infamous. Grossly, no one. But um, people like this don't get the difference between good attention and bad attention. They just think they're special. They're goblins, exactly. Oh my God. That's an epic case. Thanks for sharing that. That's cool. It was it was really crazy to research it. And um it's it's such a fucking shame that this guy's still around, because you know, death row in California. And the the wonderful Hawks don't get to spend any time with baby Jace. Yeah, that's really sad. Hey, so the sun has gone down and the moon has come out. I believe it's time for something, but I can't remember what. It's true crime night time. <gasps> that's it. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Such as an exhibition of Dr. Harold Shipman's favourite ties. I'd go to that. Yeah. So Tara, are you itchy? All the time. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. 
We've got one here, Tara, from Alex Webb in Bristol in the UK. Know what I mean? Know what I mean. He writes, hey guys, I have a recommendation for True Crime Nerd Time, an old TV show called Autopsy. (gasps) That's a brilliant show. I love it. It's the one with Michael Baden. Not to be confused with the program of the same name where the strange large hat wearing German guy does live autopsies. Oh, no, I don't care for that. Or the one where they talk about famous people's last hours. Autopsy is a HBO television series starring Dr. Michael Baden, a real-life forensic pathologist. He's a primary analyst and has been personally involved in many of the cases that are reviewed. This program was around from the mid-90s in the UK and had a few bite-sized true crime stories per episode and detailed how forensic pathologists solve the crimes in clever ways. So there's six parts to it, and they're about an hour each, and I watched them on YouTube, which was awesome, so you can find it there. This is how the Carl Tanzler case rang a bell with me when podcasts started to cover him. I attribute this program to my current obsession with true crime, and I've got numerous recordings of those good old VHS tapes. Seriously worth checking out. It's like longer episodes of Forensic Files. Well, Alex closes his uh, brilliantly worded email with, Keep up the good work. I must have about 20 crime podcasts on my app, but you guys have to be my favourite. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet, Alex. Yeah. And and thank you for your contribution. Yeah, and if you'd like to send us through a true crime nerd time, uh, just email us. Bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. That's true, Tara, it is. My story goes like this. Anthony Ramon Sullivan was born in 1959. A rough-and-tumble lad, school was not for Anthony. He was often in trouble there when he bothered to show up. Ah. He gave up on his studies at the tender age of 15. According to people who knew him at the time, Anthony had difficulties adjusting his behaviour to the demands and needs of others. In other words, Tara, he lacked empathy and was a bit of a prick. Uh Uh-huh. Anthony was detained as a juvenile on many occasions. After first leaving school, he worked as a labourer but found pinching shite and selling drugs more agreeable. In his adult life, he had three long-term relationships and he sired many children, including a daughter with whom he has an ongoing relationship. Oh, okay, so he's still in touch with her. Yeah. Anthony was brutally assaulted on August 12, 1985, while he was changing a tyre on his car. Was it someone he knew or like a robbery thing? Just a robbery thing. Okay. He was admitted to Gosford Hospital that evening, unconscious with a skull fracture. Oh, shit. A CT scan of his brain was performed two days later. It revealed no abnormalities. Upon regaining consciousness five days after the bashing, he complained of experiencing hallucinations and was noted by staff to be a tad aggressive. He was discharged on August 20, 1985. So that's just over a week later. Yeah, well, having a fractured skull would cause all kinds of problems, like possibly pain meds might have caused the hallucinations. It did cause some problems, Tara. In July 1986, Anthony was charged with the murder of Kevin Bartley, who was fatally stabbed following an argument with Anthony about unpaid rent. Anthony claimed Bartley threatened him with a knife. Three knives were found deeply embedded in Bartley. What? And get this, one of which was hammered into his body with a piece of wood. Okay, well, that's a pretty interesting self-defence case right there, isn't it? There were also numerous stab wounds to Bartley's neck, chest and back. Ah, the stab in the back defence wound when you're protecting yourself. That's, that's an interesting one, well, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite common. Yeah, all the time. The courts accepted Anthony's plea of guilty to manslaughter on the basis of his diminished responsibility from the brain damage he was thought likely to have sustained as a result of the head injury. 
This was in combination with his chronic cannabis addiction. Oh, my God. I feel like every story you tell about murderers, it's like they smoked pot and so they killed people. Yeah, it's a gateway drug. Uh, It's a gateway to just some more joints when I feel like it personally. I think it's just a pissy excuse. Yeah, I smoked the, the wacky tobacco and I went cray-cray. Yeah, yeah, it happens all the time. No, it yeah, doesn't. I've, I've killed so many people. So, Tara, various reports were attended on sentencing. Okay. Psychologist John Taylor concluded that Anthony suffered from a form of organic brain disorder and that he had a long-standing passive-aggressive personality with poor social adjustment likely to have been influenced by his chronic and entrenched use of weed. I know what you're saying is important, but I also find it interesting that John Taylor from Duran Duran became like a therapist in Australia. <laughs> wow, this guy's career, I mean. He gets around. You know, John Taylor's a very rare name, so yeah. <laughs> No, both those names are rare. He also noted that he tested within a low level of intellectual functioning. So he's a bit of a dumbass. Well, according to John Taylor. Well, psychiatrist Dr. Malcolm Dent said that Anthony had a degree of impairment that impacted adversely on his capacity to exercise control and judgment when surprised or threatened, which would have contributed to impulsiveness and a limited insight into the consequences of his behaviour. So no surprise birthday parties for Anthony. Oh, hell no. Not unless yeah. you want to get triple stabbed and then have one hammered in. Yeah, no, don't burst a balloon behind you oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, God, no. On March 19, 1987, Justice Lee sentenced Anthony to a term of 16 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 12 years. Seven years later, Anthony applied for parole. Oh, that's right. The numbers make no sense. Remember the... the um. What is it? The criminal justice system math could make you just not understand how maths works, right? Well, as part of that application, he was examined by a number of mental health care professionals. Psychiatrist Dr. Reed confirmed that Anthony still had a low intellectual ability and he still displayed entrenched traits related to poor emotional control, still had a tendency to act irrationally and with hostility and still lacked empathy. On November 29, 1994, Dr. Arthur Shaws, a neuropsychologist, reviewed the reports and findings of his fellow clinicians and stated, Although many individuals with this pattern seek psychological attention for their problems, they are usually poor risk for insight-orientated psychotherapy because they are not very introspective, have inadequate ego controls, have difficulty expressing emotions in a modulated way, and are unpredictable in treatment. The client is so emotionally and socially alienated that it may be difficult for a therapist to gain his confidence. Sounds fair? Yeah, okay, I get that. So they're saying like, um, I guess rehabilitation and probation and things mightn't necessarily work considering his state of mind. His application for parole was successful. They also gave him a puppy, a kitten, a basket of muffins and a strawberry milkshake. After Anthony's release, after serving his sentence for manslaughter, he has been convicted on six separate occasions for possession of prohibited drugs and for a number of offences of dishonesty. So is that stealing shit? Pension shit, selling the aforementioned shit. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Although there are no entries on his record for violent offences since his release, authorities were concerned that Anthony's drug use diminished his prospects for rehabilitation. I would be concerned about that too. Though they were encouraged by his control of his impulses and the tendency to aggression seemed to be in check. Or was it? Well, it's a pretty short story if it was. And... <laughs> <laughs> by 2007, Anthony's main income was from selling drugs and Adam Prachillo was his regular customer. Anthony sold weed and speed, amongst other things, to Adam, which was sometimes paid for in money and sometimes in the form of goods of one sort or another, mostly stolen. Anthony did not like Adam. And there are reasons. Okay. He had developed considerable animosity and sustained hostility towards Adam, stemming from his belief that Adam had swiped his wallet while showering. So hang on. Okay, so Adam came over to buy some weed and speed, some wacky tobacco and some speedy saweedy, and then this guy went, I'm just going to leave my wallet here and have a shower. Hey, hey, Adam, I'll be right with you. I'm just going to take a quick shower. I'm going to have a shower. Don't steal my wallet. (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, I, but you know, I've been working for most yeah. of my life, and I generally work while showering with my wallet out. This is how I roll. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fool, Tara. I know, and yet no one's stolen it yet. In a conversation with Mr. Gould, a neighbour, Anthony said he was going to get Adam or stab him the next time he came around. Ooh. Mr. Gould described Anthony's manner at that time as angry and agitated and he had sand in his vagina. And possibly his butt crack. Oh, that's very uncomfortable. That mm. would make me mad. Maybe in his, like, wee hole. Oh, no. Mm, it grates. No. It grates. It makes you into a stabby person. Sand in the Stargate. Ugh, no. That's <laughs> not what the movie Stargate was about. Or was it? That's what I call it. Yeah. Uh, Adam visited Anthony sometime shortly after 1am on the morning of October 3, 2007, having phoned 20 minutes or so earlier and telling Anthony he was coming over to buy some drugs and sell some stolen shit. Okay. Evidence presented later in court stated that Adam was in critical need of money to fund some pending legal proceedings. Oh, he's probably just trying to, I don't know, do something really cool legally, not defend himself against stealing shit. That's maybe it's <laughs> parking tickets. It's, I don't know. Probably. Yeah. Anthony did not refuse his request. Now, Tara, a question arises as to what Anthony's motives were at this time. I personally think Anthony wanted to quiz Adam over his missing wallet or perhaps he just wanted some sweet, sweet payback. Well, he told his neighbour he wanted to get him and stab him, so there's that. There were three guests who were asleep in the lounge room behind a closed door when Adam arrived. They later gave different evidence as to what they saw or heard of the arrival of Adam and his encounter with Anthony. They all observed Anthony as they emerged from the lounge room to see him holding a knife with blood dripping from the blade. He probably then asked them for a plank of wood. Yeah, because, like, the knife shouldn't come out. You should hammer that shit in, right? I mean, according to his prior crime. Anthony convinced him to help clean up the blood and dispose of the knife. Well, they were staying over at his house. I mean, I guess they kind of... Like, that's what good guests do. That's the least I could do. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Yeah. Though later in court, the jury was instructed not to rely on the evidence of these witnesses and to apply an S-165 of the 1995 Evidence Act at trial because of their chronic alcoholism. So hang on, um, the people staying there were like pissed and so don't believe their shit. Yeah. Is that what the, Thank that, you for that summing act that is? Up. Okay, good. I believe that's actually when you look up that act, that's what you read formally in the court documents. Yeah. They a, were pissed and shit, can't trust their stuff. There's a picture of you saying it. Yeah, there is. It's a gif, actually. Instead, they were instructed to rely upon the evidence of Mr Gould and Mr Bradshaw, Anthony's neighbours. So Anthony lived at a property in Manning Street, The Entrance. That's the name of the town. Yeah, I know. It's in the waterways outside of Sydney. Yeah, it looks pretty. Uh, it's about 65 kilometres north of Sydney. Yeah. yeah, Near Gosford. That's about 40 miles or so, I think, Tara. Yeah, around about that. It comprised of a house divided into two flats. Okay. Or apartments. At around 2am on October 3, 2007, Mr Bradshaw said that through his open lounge room window, he heard muffled voices. Blah, 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 blah. A door being shut and someone being winded and then a male voice repeatedly saying in a heightened and panicked tone, Sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. I didn't mean it. Mr. Gold gave evidence that he went to bed at midnight. Sometime after that, he heard yelling from the back of the property, which sounded like people arguing. That might have been common. And getting stabbed over a stolen wallet. Well, yeah. A possibly stolen wallet. Within minutes of Adam... Leaving Anthony's property, he was heard by another neighbour at his front door calling for help and saying that he had been stabbed in the chest. Thereafter, his breathing became erratic and laboured. He died before the ambulance arrived. So he must have got him, like, in the heart or in some artery. Well, it's the heart there, the chest, yeah? That's normally where the heart is. Oh, well, I mean, mine isn't there, but most people's are. Yeah, what's yours in your ass? That's in my butt. (laughs) You guessed it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have a thick butt and it, it keeps it padded, so you'd have to stab me pretty deep. Mm, the better the cushion, the sweeter the pushing or the something? The bigger the cushion, the sweeter the pushing. Uh, Get yeah. it right, spinal I'm, tap. I'm really sorry. The crown case at trial was that Anthony stabbed Adam in the chest with a large-bladed kitchen knife at or near the front door of Anthony's home and that he did so either with an intention to kill Adam or to inflict grievous bodily harm 
and it was a premeditated act of revenge at the apparent theft of his wallet. I'd buy that. Okay, yeah, sounds legit. Anthony's case at trial was that he removed the knife from the knife block in the kitchen and stabbed Adam in self-defence after Adam barged through the door and attacked him, causing him to fall from his chair and to slide across the kitchen floor. In his evidence, Anthony claimed that he was repeatedly hit about the upper body and head by Adam while he was on the floor, and believing that he was going to be seriously hurt, he reached up, grabbed the knife, swung it around blindly in the direction of Adam and stabbed him in the chest without intending either to kill him or to inflict any grievous bodily harm. Well, that's that's all a lot of coincidence, isn't it? Anthony stated that he was entitled to be acquitted of the murder because he acted reasonably in defence of himself. Hey, Tara, I'm just going to give you this. Can you do the voice of the Crown Prosecutor here? Oh, absolutely. Actually, doing voices in your stories is... Probably one of my favourite things in the world. Well, I think you can. I think you can do a crown prosecutor. Oh, I believe that I certainly can. So, when asked about his drug use that day, Anthony, the court transcript reads: Just before Mister Prochillo came, how were you feeling so far as the marijuana was concerned? Just cruising, just out of it, whacked, you know. Sorry. Just out of it, you know, whacked. Out of it, whacked. What do you mean by that? Yeah, just a bit whack, just cruising well, stoned. <laughs> stoned? And what do you mean by that? Out of it, just out of it, stoned. Out of it, mate, stoned, cruising. You also say that you'd taken some amphetamine during the day. Yeah. So how many times before Mr. Procillo came the first time had you taken amphetamine on that day or night? Oh, how many times had I taken it that night and day? About three times or four times that day? So, by the time Mr. Procillo came the first time to see you, how many times had you taken marijuana? Oh, about three. How many times had you taken amphetamines? About three. (laughs) What an exchange. The jury rejected Anthony's evidence as to how Adam was killed. Mr Gould testified he met Anthony by chance in their shared yard later on October 7, 2007, and that Anthony openly and boastfully volunteered an account of the circumstances in which Adam was killed. He said that Anthony told him that Adam came into the house and tried to stand over him, whereupon he said to Adam, hang on a minute. He said that and then he went and got the knife and came back and stabbed him. So I'm just going to stop you right here. I've just got to go and get a knife. Yeah, just wait right there. Don't go anywhere. Just, like, pause. I'm going to go get a knife and stab you. Don't move. He said that Adam said, no, Sol. I guess that's short for Sullivan. Yeah, it's his nickname. And that he then demonstrated how Adam held his hands up with his palms out above the height of his shoulders. Mr. Gould said that Anthony told him that the knife went straight into Adam and then he fell on the ground. He said that Adam then got back up and ran out the door. Well, that's all pretty incriminating, don't you think? He said Anthony told one of his guests to get rid of the knife. Mr. Gould was also consistent with what Anthony told his daughter in a conversation covertly recorded the same day. Ooh, sneaky. In referring to Adam, he said, at least I put him down. Ooh. Justice Elizabeth Fullerton stated, this is the judge, Mm Mm-hmm. In neither conversation did Anthony display any regret or remorse at having killed Adam. To the contrary, he expressed some satisfaction at having killed him. His conduct within hours of the killing in both actively misleading police and deflecting the police investigation into the killing compels the same conclusion. She's not wrong. No, she ain't. On July 7, 2009, the jury returned a verdict of guilty to murder. Or murder. As Baz would say. Oh, if only Barry was here. Sentencing was delayed, Tara, as the court got its shit together in regard to Anthony's 1985 head injury, specifically that at the time of the murder, Anthony suffered from an underlying neurological deficit associated with pre-existing frontal lobe damage. So he's had a bit knock of head. He's, uh, he's a bit not right in the head. It's all right. No. Or was it? Well, let's throw him a surprise party and find out. (laughs) Science, baby. 
Justice Fulton stated, Mental illness may be relevant in three ways. First, where mental illness contributes to the commission of the offence in a material way. Anthony's moral culpability may be reduced and punishment warranted may accordingly be reduced. Secondly, mental illness may render Anthony an inappropriate vehicle for general deterrence. Right. So if you're nuts, you shouldn't stab people and think you're going to get away with it. Well, yeah, and maybe if that's used as a an excuse or a reason too frequently, it might encourage people to use that as a defence or a reason in future who maybe don't qualify for it. Mm. Justice Fulton added, Thirdly, a custodial sentence may weigh more heavily on a mentally ill person. What does she mean by that? Well, if it's proved that he does have a mental condition, yeah. the sentence will be reduced accordingly oh, okay. because it's going to be harder on someone. It was a really like long way around in terms of that sentence, though. Like it was kind of court speak, which is fine. She's in the court, makes sense. She added, oh, "By the way, I love this judge. I have already discounted the influence of Anthony's drug use on the day of the killing." Thank you. Anthony has been both supplying and using drugs in considerable quantities for some months prior to the murder. It also militates against his prospects of rehabilitation, particularly given that his responsibility for the intentional killing of another man in 1996 was found to be diminished in part because of his chronic use of cannabis. Mm -hmm. So let me sum it up for you, Tara. Please do. In the end, Judge Fulton said, fuck no. (laughs) Okay, good. I can understand those words in a sentence. So yes, there was no reduced to manslaughter, get out of jail early card this time round. Okay, cool, because, like, you know, one of those is probably more than enough. In fact, Judge Fullerton stated, Anthony has manifested in his commission of the offence a continuing attitude of disobedience of the law. In the latter case, retribution, deterrence and protection of society may all indicate that a more severe penalty is warranted. Hells yeah. Makes sense. Anthony Pacillo's brother, Vincent, his former wife, Joanne Salter, their son, Daniel, and two stepdaughters, Kelly and Kylie, all provided victim impact statements. So, oh, you know, these are always heartbreaking. They are. Ms. Salter described the love and laughter Adam brought into her life and those of her children. She says that despite the fact she was separated from Adam at the time of his murder, the family continued to mourn his death and had become emotionally drained by their exposure to the criminal justice system. Oh, it takes so long. It really, that makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah, just gut punches over and over. Yeah. Although Ms. Salter received grief counselling, her depression has compromised her ability to resume full-time work. Oh, Anthony's stepdaughter, Callie, explained how her father committed suicide soon after she was born, and Kylie explained how she had never really known her biological father. They described how proud they were both to have Adam as their stepfather. They also spoke of how it hurt them to see their mother so heartbroken and how helpless they felt being unable to do anything to help ease her pain. Ah, well, absolutely. Adam's eldest son, Daniel, spoke of how very close he was to his father and the range of emotions he has experienced over the two years following his death, ranging from confusion and disbelief to sadness, anger and grief. He had been receiving grief counselling in order to deal with his loss, which also affected his ability to concentrate at school. Ah, the ripple effect is never-ending when it comes to murder. Anthony's brother Vincent explained that despite Adam being his half-brother, he regarded him as his closest sibling. That's just part of yourself, you know? Yeah, well, it's your nearest and dearest. It's the, you know, the handful of people in your life that you actually feel close to. Yeah. So Anthony Ramon Sullivan was sentenced to 25 years with a non-parole period of 18 years. He will be eligible for parole in October 2032. Let's hope he stays in there for a while this time. Yeah, that might be a good idea in hindsight. Mm. Wow, that is one hell of a story. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. We need something like a little palate cleanser towards the end of our episode. Um, If only we'd thought of something to do here, because aren't we just going to say, like, goodbye, suck it, goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye, suck it. Suck it. (laughs) There's our new sign-off. Yeah, goodbye, suck it, cry it up, fuck face. (laughs) So oh, no. uh, now we're done. Tara, I've got an idea. Yeah, what? What is Aussie as? Oh, so I should do a thing called Aussie as like I have the past 80 episodes and I should tell you that they're tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour, should I? 
Yeah, yeah. Should I do one? Yeah, yeah. You think? Yeah. So this one is actually another suggestion from Erica Lil Biddy. I swear we'd put her on the payroll if we had one. We could pay you in bollars. Yeah, all the bollars you want. Police in Murdoch, Western Australia, were searching a house in Perth in relation to a burglary investigation when they discovered what has to be the best harebrained stoner's rather ridiculous to-do list. Would you like to hear it? I would. There are 10 points on it. They're all got a lot of gravity to them. Okay, point one, get up, get ready. Two, get bus fare. Three, go to bus stop. Four, catch the 5132 redacted. Five, go get lunch, in brackets, chips and gravy. Because you might forget that you wanted to eat chips and gravy. Six, go to Kmart and shop. Seven, go to bus stop. Eight, go to redacted's house and dye hair. Nine, go home and get a stick. Ten, Chop up and get stoned. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to write it down because if you forgot, how boring would TV be? I mean, oh, come no. on. Oh, God, I hope it doesn't lead to murder. Oh, well, if it's a Barney case, it always does. So police tweeted a photo of the list with the caption, Are your Saturdays hectic like this? <laughs> After people thought it was a joke, they tweeted, Yes, the to-do list was authentic. I don't think any of us here could make it up if we tried. Hashtag no sense of humour. He forgot to put make a list at the start. I know that you should could, always be the first point. Right, you can tick it off. You feel like you're getting somewhere yeah. straight away. Instantly. Many witty replies followed. At least he had realistic personal goals, which he probably achieved, seemed to sum up the general reaction. But not everyone found the tweet funny. A guy named Tony responded, No wonder our homes keep getting broken into. The Murdoch police are too busy embarrassing drug addicts on social media. Grow up. What a whiny bitch. Well, they actually replied, Sorry, Tony. The reason we were there was to investigate a break-in. And, of course, arguments broke out. The police did not disclose the identity of the person who wrote the list or the house where it was found. So I don't think there's actually a basis for saying the cops shamed someone who may be, you know, intellectually deficient. It's got no ties to anyone at all. Yeah, I see that, yeah. Another Twitter user had a pretty unique reaction to the list. They said... This is proof we need to legalise marijuana. If this is the MO of the average pot smoker, we're all very safe. (laughs) I'd agree with that. He's not wrong. (laughs) By the way, I love that the um, Murdoch police had the hashtag no sense of humour when clearly they're funny buggers. They are, aren't they? (laughs) I I really enjoyed that. Mm, Me too. So that pretty much brings us to the end of another episode of Bloody Murder. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. Did I sound thirsty enough? You sounded so damn thirsty. You set a <laughs> thirst oh, trap with that. Drink. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Sarabat. And we just did some more bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Feel free to join our awesome Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. All the stuff. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes, and all of that sweet, sweet merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. I think I've got a leaky sink, and I'm not talking about my personal plumbing. Oh my god! I'm talking we, about our kitchen. We realised midway through this episode, Barney's kitchen floor is just covered in water now, and it's come from somewhere. Yeah. We don't know where. We kind of like plugged it up and went, "This is a later problem. Let's finish the episode and then." sonic pressure on my head since 1997. 
You know what? Your whole kitchen is probably just underwater at this point. Hey, Tara, I tasted it. It's definitely not urine this time. Oh, I'm glad that you know the taste of urine and you're ready to <laughs> just take one for the tasting well, team. Oh, that's right. Good to know. Okay, so we should probably look into that. We probably should. It was really flowing. Yeah, Um, we we might have to do a GoFundMe, uh, get my kitchen from underwater fund. We might need scuba gear just to check it out. Yeah, do it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.